Good morning. I am very honored to be with you this morning and to be invited by, by Ben and William to share this, this meeting. You know, one of the ways that God expresses His goodness to me in each and every season is by giving me new friends. And one of the joys that I have is to be, be given in this season new friends in Ben and William and in downtown community church. So, so thanks for receiving me so warmly. Okay, Acts chapter 20, please. I've been asked to speak from this passage. Um, title of this morning's message is The Audacious Claim of the Gospel. The Audacious Claim of the Gospel. And I'm going to read it, so if you don't have your Bible, no problem. I'll be reading it out loud. But let me just start by giving you a little bit of context of what's going on here in Acts chapter 20. The date is probably around A.D. 57. The ship carrying Paul has docked in Miletus, which is a town about 30 miles southwest of of Ephesus. And from there, Paul calls these old friends he has, the Ephesian elders, to come down and to join him. And, And Paul does this for two different reasons. Number one, Paul was an intensely relational man. Okay, Paul's never merely fulfilling a job description in what he does, but he has these old friends. They're up in Ephesus. He's going to be only 30 miles from them, and so he calls for them. and says, hey, come down. Let's chill together. Let's enjoy one another. But there's a second reason as well, and that is that Paul thinks he is going to die. And so we're going to discover together that his tone appears grave, his subject quite serious, because his gaze is fixed upon Jerusalem and what he thinks is going to be his death. Acts chapter 20, beginning in verse 17. Now, from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first time that I set set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, Except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, 
I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Let me just stop right there. Would you join me in praying and just asking for God's help this morning? Lord, I want to thank you for the opportunity to open your word. But we're not here to just hear another message, God. We, we want to encounter you through your word. So we pray that you would give us ears to hear. I pray you would give me a mouth to serve these good people. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I have found over the years hiking to be an excellent time to kind of explore life's deeper questions with my kids. And such was the case a while back when my oldest son and I were, were, were hiking up through the Pennsylvania countryside. I lived up in Philadelphia at that point, so we're in this area. And there's this beautiful trail that, that goes about five miles up that delivers you into this breathtaking view of, uh, of the countryside and in that portion of Pennsylvania. And we were sitting on this outcropping of rock, and while we were there, we met some college students that had come up, and they were kind of hiking around and, uh, and uh, asked them what they were doing, and they said they were going to go down and do some cave exploring, and so they invited us to come along. And so as life found me that day, I was following a group of people I had never met to a place I had never been to do something I had never done. And, uh, and so we come to the entrance of the cave, and we, we kind of kneel down and climb into the cave, and we're going through the cave, and there's a place where you could stand up and continue to go into the interior, and all of a sudden we're in an area where the, the, the cave opens up into this chamber, and there's a light shining down into the middle of the cave, and you look up, and there's a hole at the top of the cave. And all, almost as if this was the reason why the students had come, they began climbing up the side of the cave wall, and climbing out the hole in the roof. So there were four of them all together, and the first one went up, and the second one went up. By the third time the third one was starting to climb, my son was getting very agitated, and he was getting very excited. So when the fourth one cleared the hole, my son immediately turned to me and said, Oh, Dad, please let me go up the side of the cave wall. I want to go up the side of the cave wall. Can I go up the side of the cave wall? And I'm trying to explain to him that I didn't think it was a good idea for him to go up the side of the cave wall. Son, your mother sent two of us up here today, and if it's just me that comes back, she's going to be very disappointed. So how about you not go up the side of the cave wall? But he looked so disappointed, and I thought, you know, we're, we're here to build a memory, and we're 60 miles away from home, and Mom doesn't really need to know about this, does she? So, so yes, son, go up the side of the cave wall. So he, he scampers up and goes right up the side of the cave wall and out the, out the, you know, the hole in the roof. And now, I should have anticipated what was going to happen. I should have known that this is where the whole thing was going. Because all of a sudden, he gets through the roof. They all kind of peek their head through the hole. And they say, come on up. And they're doing this with their hand. Come on up. And I'm looking up at them. And they're doing this come on up thing. And I'm thinking... There's no way that I'm going up the side of the cave wall. I, long ago, I stopped feeling the need to go up the side of a cave wall. I think it's like around your second child 
where you no longer feel the urge. It's, it's when you have a mortgage payment and a bad back and you're paying off your car that all of a sudden you don't feel the need to go up the side of a cave wall anymore. And so I just said, no, I'm not going to go up the side of the cave wall. And I just kind of said, son, I'll meet you up there. And so I kind of crawled out the hole and came around and met my son. And we're walking down the trail. And, and I'm, I'm feeling like very old at the moment. I, you know, I just want somebody to kind of wrap me in a blanket and feed me prunes and, you know, <laughs> check on my retirement. You know, just feeling very old at that moment. And the air was like was thick with disappointment. I could tell my son was disappointed. And I realized I had made a mistake. And so I stopped in the middle of the trail and I said, Son, we're going back. I'm going back up the cable. And I knew it was the right decision when he said, Yes! As if to say, My dad's not a wimp. <laughs> and so, about 20 minutes later, I'm back in the cave and I'm, I'm standing in front of the cave wall and I start going up the side of the cave wall and there's one part where you come to a ledge, and what you have to do is you have to push off with one hand on one wall the ledge so that you can get to another ledge and put your hand, your, your hand on the wall and, and have your foot hit that ledge so that you can finish the ascent. And so I push off the one wall, my hand hits the other wall, but my foot goes for the ledge and my foot misses the ledge, and I begin sliding down the cave wall. And I'm there, like spread eagle, stranded. And I remember just thinking, you know, your, your mind kind of slows down in moments like that. And, 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 and I was immediately paralyzed and thinking, well, I don't know what to do now. You know, here I am. I'm, I'm stuck. There's no going back because I couldn't move. I can't stay where I am. The only place to go is to go forward, but going forward comes a great risk. I, I, I can't give up. I can't say, oh, hang it, I'm just going to fall. You know, I, I can't just decide that I'm just going to stay still. You know, although that was a temptation. I remember thinking, you know, hey, this is not so bad. I could live here. I understand the climate of caves is the same all year round. I could tell Tyler, my oldest son, to go get mom. She could bring food. They could decorate me for Christmas. I mean, there's crazy things that go through your mind at a moment like that. But I remember thinking, yeah, there's no going back. I can't stay where I am. The only place to go is forward, but going forward comes at great risk. Have you ever noticed how often God puts us in that position? There's no going back. Can't stay where we are. The only place to go is to go forward. But boy, by taking a step in that direction, there is great risk. There is a possible cost. Now, let's leave me hanging suspended for a second and go back to Paul because Paul in this passage is in a similar position. Different reasons, similar position. I was confronting risk because I'm an idiot and I didn't want to disappoint my son. And by the way, I'll hold you in suspense no longer. I I did make it to the top and I did not die. But Paul confronted risk because he was a Christian. Paul confronted risk 
Because the Spirit of God, the gospel compelled him. Look again at verse 22. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there. See, see, for Paul, there was no going back. He couldn't stay where he was. The only place to go was to go forward, but going forward came at risk. The only certainty in Paul's life was the certainty of uncertainty. The only certainty in Paul's life was the certainty that to move forward, he would have to take risks. And what I want to share with you this morning is that the gospel of Jesus Christ imposes a similar experience of cost and risk upon all of us. In other words, it makes the same claim upon us as it made upon Paul back then. Now, as I say that, don't don't misunderstand. That doesn't mean that we're all called to travel like Paul, to suffer like Paul, to risk our life like Paul does. But it does mean that God has designed the mission in such a way so that the gospel goes forward whether it's to Rome or whether it's to your friend across the street, the gospel goes forward through risk, through cost. That the Christian life is this kind of mysterious suspense where we are ever constrained by the Spirit, going to Jerusalem, not knowing what awaits us. And the more we understand that, the more we come face to face with an undeniable fact for both Paul and for us as well, and that is that the gospel makes an audacious claim upon us. It makes an audacious claim upon us. And I want you to hear that in three different ways. I want to I talk about three different ways that this audacious claim comes both upon Paul and upon us as well. So here's claim number one. Go forth uncertain. Claim number one, go forth uncertain. I love this verse 22 because I think it's a great summary of Paul's overall experience with God when we study his life. It says, and now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there. In other words, Paul's experience was that God would create this compulsion, constrained by the Spirit, I am going to, to Jerusalem. So God would, God would create this compulsion. He would set him in motion. But God would withhold from him exactly what's going to happen as a result of his faith in going. So I'm going to Jerusalem not knowing what will happen. See, that was basically how Paul's life ran. And you know what? It's how your life runs as well. I mean, for Paul... The threat of this began all the way back in his conversion. I mean, Jesus speaks to him. He's converted. And and Jesus says, rise and enter the city. And you're told what to do. You know, what am I supposed to do? I can imagine Saul thinking, well, what am I supposed to do? Don't worry about that. We'll get to that. I just want to get you oriented to serving me. I want to get you oriented to a life where you don't need the whole picture. I want to invite you into an adventure. I want to invite you into a journey where you are responding to my voice, responding in obedience, responding to my word, where you are going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen. Acts 13, he's with, he's with the church at Antioch. The Spirit of God speaks to the church. Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul 
for the work to which I've called them. You know, great, another nondescript picture of the future. Just set apart these two guys. I've got some work to which I've called them. What does all that mean? Where are we supposed to go? God says, don't worry. We'll get to that. Acts 16, the Macedonian call. Come over to Macedonia, the Spirit said, and help us, or the man said through the Spirit, and help us. Well, great. I mean, Macedonia is a big place. Where in Macedonia? Where are we supposed to go? What are we supposed to do? God just says, don't worry. I just want you in motion. I want you responding. We'll get to that. See, for Paul in the New Testament, for you, life is always this sense of being constrained by the Spirit, going to Jerusalem, not knowing what awaits us. That's a basic prescription for life under Jesus Christ. And so one of the questions that we have to wrestle with this morning is, you know, why why would God do that? Why would he do that to Paul? Why would he do that to us? And one of the answers to that is that it reminds us when we live with that kind of arrangement, it reminds us each and every day that there is a huge difference between God and us. I mean, you may be great at your job. You may be a great student. You may be a fantastic mother, but you are, you are not omniscient in the way God is. You may be great at a number of skills. You may be a great musician, but you are not omnicompetent the way God is. See, the existence of risk in your life reminds you daily of how much greater God is than you are because God doesn't take risks. Nor does he need to be a risk taker. God is neither ever going because he's already there, nor is he not knowing because he knows all things. The presence of risk is installed in our life to remind us of our humanity, of our brokenness, of how different we are from God, that we're not divine. We are human. We have limitations. We are ignorant. We confront risk because we don't know the future. We don't control the future. Only God controls all things. We control, I mean, what do we really control? We control very very little. We live under the illusion of control. We're always trying to grasp for control. We, We long for control, but I mean, just have, you know, threat of tornadoes in the area, or, or the economy tank, or or we get unexpectedly ill. Or, I mean, the weather is a big... I, I come from an era, I was born and raised in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Lived in Philadelphia for about 27 years. You know, I come from areas where even the threat of snow sends people to an insane asylum. And people just go crazy. Not because it's snowing, but because there's a forecast of snow. And so just a threat of a forecast that will immediately start 24-hour reporting on what's happening and when's the snow going to come. And there was a flurry scene about 40 miles from here. And, uh, and, and people, there will be a rush upon the supermarket. And they'll be only be buying two things. It's milk and bread, milk and bread, milk and bread, milk and bread. You know, as if when it begins to snow, all people want is a glass of milk and a sandwich. Milk and bread, milk and bread, milk and bread. But the weather, the weather reminds us of how little control we really have. And risk exists because we can't 
control events. We don't know what's going to happen. In fact, the existence of risk in your life reasserts daily a problem that is uncovered all the way back in the gospel, which is that you're not strong, you are weak. We are not infinite, we are finite. We are not independent, we are dependent upon God, that we need Jesus Christ. We must trust God for everything. And who we really are is revealed when we confront the reality of this, what I'm calling the audacious claims of the gospel. Because if you're anything like me, this idea of going, not knowing, I mean, it's a, it's a prescription for anxiety for me. I mean, it, it drives me utterly crazy. Because it, 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 it makes me release everything I have of what I think of my life should be. And, and what I'm trying to say to you this morning is that God delights putting us in that position of going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen. God delights putting us in that position because it positions us to exercise faith in Him. Because it reminds us to walk not by, not by sight, not by feelings, but by faith. Because the reality is that risk it causes us to experience God in entirely new ways. And God knows that. So God uses that. I mean, God thinks nothing of saying to Abram all the way back in the beginning of the Bible in Genesis 12, um, Abram, yes, God, can I have your attention for a second? Um, let's, let's roll with this plan. Leave your country, your people, and your father's household and go to the land I will show you. <laughs> um, what are you talking about? No, no. Just Let me just keep it simple, Abram. Leave your country, your people, and your father's household and go. Where? To the land. Where? I'll show it to you. When? We'll get to that. See, I mean, if you're anything like me, I'm like, wait a minute, Lord. I wasn't born yesterday. You show me the land, and then I'll let you know if I want to go. Because that land may be, may be toxic. That land, there may be giants in that land. Maybe there's those people in that land. You know, Lord, how much I don't like relating to those people, whoever they may be. And God says, no, Dave, you don't understand. I want you going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen. Listen, I guarantee you, Abram's experience with God became far different the morning he walked out of there, away from all he knew. And I understand you're sitting there saying, Dave, that's crazy. It's absurd. It's irrational. It's, it's audacious. I'm saying, that's my point. The gospel makes an audacious claim upon us. It says, go forth, uncertain. Second point, second claim, prepare for difficulty. Prepare for difficulty. So verse 23 adds this like additional twist to the audacious claim. Paul says, except, so I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment 
and afflictions await me. So I guess, you know, Paul wasn't completely ignorant. He at least knew this one thing, that imprisonment and afflictions awaited him. I mean, you know, like if, if I'm Paul, I'm before God saying, Lord, can, can we at least make an arrangement here? Can I either have complete ignorance or can I have the game plan? But if you're going to let me in on a little something, does it need to be the fact that imprisonment and afflictions await me? It's kind of like Paul knew there was danger. He knew there was going to be some kind of injury up ahead. The, he had a sense for the ending. He just, he just didn't know how it was going to happen. I mean, you know, it reminds me of um, Star Trek was big when I was growing up. I understand it's coming back, you know. But in Star Trek, whether it's, you know, there's, there's always a captain. There's Captain Kirk, Captain Picard, Cisco, Archer, you know, whatever I... I speak multiple dialects of Star Trek. But inevitably, whoever it was, there would be this call to the transporter room, and there would always be like three or four main crew members. They're there every week. They're always going on the same adventure together. And then there would be this one no-name guy or woman, this typically a guy, this, this lieutenant, and you, you knew they were, in, they were stepping on the transporter to go down to the surface for only one reason. They were alien bait. That's what they were. That was the only thing they served in it. And, and, and so you're recognizing, again, all the, there's, there's stepping on the transporter. There's like main crew member, main crew member, main crew member, alien bait. And, and he, he or she was going to be beamed down to the surface. And you never understood why they never got that that person never came back, that these main crew members were always coming back each and every week. But when you, if you're the guy getting called down to the transporter room, you're thinking, wait a minute, I'm not one of the regulars. I'm dying down there. I think I'll stay up here and just chill out and drink light beer. So, so you have a sense for the ending. You just don't know how it's going to happen. See, here's what Paul knew. I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what awaits me. But I do know this one thing. There will be a cost. There will be difficulty. Now, why does Paul know that? I think there's a sense, if we're honest with ourselves, that we realize that most of us, live life seeking the path of least resistance. You know, there just seems to be this fundamental human drive we have for, for, for comfort, a desire to remain hassle-free, to, to rule like God over our own life, to eliminate risk, to obliterate cost, to, to ensure the difficulties just, just remain away from us. Because difficulties and discomfort, I mean, those two words are almost synonymous. If it doesn't assault your comfort, it's not really a difficulty. I mean, what's the big deal if Paul is saying in verse 23, I only know that hotels and hot tubs await. It doesn't have the same effect, does it? See, difficulty by design kind of strips down our comfort and violates our sense of security. 
And risk has this effect of keeping us rooted in what really matters, of keeping us rooted in verse 24, but we don't account our life of any value, nor is precious to ourself. If only we can do this one thing, if only we can finish our course and, and the ministry we receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel. I was once in, in Zambia at, at this conference where the man hosting us was, had brought his family to the West, and his family spent several years here. He was going to seminary. And they, they came to love the United States. And, and graduation became something of a defining moment for the man because he began to wrestle with questions he never thought he would have to wrestle with. Questions like, you know, why should I take the risk of uprooting my family, of going back to the poverty and the pestilence of the community that I came from, when if I stay here, I can have great health care? And I can have a good income. And I can have fast food and Starbucks and Domino's. And the answer became clear in this idea of verse 24 that I don't account my life of any value. I, 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 must, I must testify to the, Lord, to the gospel of the grace of God. That's what I'm called to do. In other words, it's because of the gospel that I have to go back. The gospel makes this audacious claim upon us. Now, I know we hear an illustration like that, and we think, yes, Zambia, yes, I, I'm ready to go. I'll sign up right now. I'm ready to board the jet and go to Zambia, go to Indonesia, go anywhere that I need to go, to go out there way far away and die for the gospel. Yeah, but that's not really what God's asking most of us right now. God's saying, okay, I'm, I'm glad you're willing to go out there, but are you, are you willing to, to just... Go forth here. Go to Jerusalem here. Step forward here. Find somewhere to serve here. Die here. Walk across the street. Take the risk of walking across the street to share the gospel with somebody else here. See, Paul is speaking in his role. I guess the question that you and I have to wrestle with is, what, what, what is your Jerusalem this morning. You know, what is the thing within your role and in your life? What does a spirit-constrained risk look like for you right now? See, if, if there's a sense where you feel God stirring you, I want you to hear God's solution for you. And that is to accept that life is a kind of going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen. And the part of the reason it's like that is because it will attack these idols of comfort that we have because nothing attacks those idols quicker than being led into an uncomfortable risk. And, and, and some of you are there right now. You know, you, you feel that. You feel compelled by the Spirit of God. You've, you've sought counsel. You have prayed. And now you must move forward. And then may, there might be other people who are on the other side of that. Some of you need to be there right now. I mean, you're, you're, you're too comfortable. You know, la last time you took a risk, nobody even knew who the Kardashians were. It's been that long. In other words, you're, you're under-challenged. 
you're lethally bored. Here's the prescription. You need to get going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what awaits. What is your Jerusalem this morning? Maybe it means giving to the poor in a new way. Maybe it means signing up for the love at work ministry and beginning to serve them. Maybe it means reconciling with someone that you feel estranged from. Maybe it means going on a mission or owning this church through, through membership. The main point that I want to get to is that God loves us too much to allow us to squander our lives in the gray twilight of ambivalence. He loves us too much. And so he says, I'm going to create your world where you are going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what awaits us. And that will help us, and this is the third point, and this is where I'm going to wrap up. That, that will help us to value the gospel above all. That's the third claim. Value the gospel above all. To value it above our life. Paul says, I don't account my life of any value, nor as precious. What I want to do is finish my course. I want to finish the ministry that I received. I want to testify to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul valued the gospel above his life. Paul valued the gospel above his relationship. Paul valued the gospel even above the fruit that he might experience from the obedience that he showed to God. Now, let me explain what I mean by this, and we're, we're wrapping up on this. Because I realize this is a strange one because we all long for fruit. We, we evangelize. We exercise leadership. We, you know, we reach out to other people. We try to build relationships. But what I'm trying to say is that Paul didn't hold God hostage to a certain kind of fruit that we would only believe in God and we would only follow God if he delivered this kind of fruit in our life. Paul just simply sought to be faithful, to testify to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's all he wanted to do. He recognized there are some things that are so worthy. Mere obedience to God is enough. There are some things that are so worthy, it's it's glorious to be a part of them. You know, a few years ago, We planted a church, and the church didn't make it, and it merged back with the church that it was planted out of. And it, this church was planted by a heroic family in a very impoverished community in the south area of a very urban district. And this family took many risks in planting this church, but as, as time began to pass, they, they realized that it probably wasn't able to go on. They weren't prepared to move forward, and so they realized that the Lord was drawing the church to a close. And it was so difficult because the people that were there stayed there and sacrificed and their hopes were there. And, and I remember the lead pastor having to wrestle through this. And on the final Sunday of their final meeting, they, they had a banquet. And they, they just wanted to review and to testify and to celebrate God's goodness to them in the time that they existed. And as the, the meeting drew to a close and the, and the history of that church ended, there was, there was one brother that just began to sing this song that the church loved, 
The song was called, Haven't You Been Good? Thank you for the, for the cross. Thank you, Lord, for drawing me out of millions lost. Thank you, Lord, for saving me. Haven't you been good? And as his voice echoed across the, the auditorium and it, it settled on the people and there was kind of a holy hush that began and then children began to get up and, and dance around the room and, and, uh, and the people stirred and the people then began to earnestly sing this same song with voices that really believed the substance of what they were singing. And, 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 and in that moment, the lead pastor of this church that had been planted but wasn't going to make it, the, the lead pastor sitting there and he's thinking, you know what? Some goals are so worthy, it's glorious to even make the attempt. The gospel is so worthy, it's glorious to even make the attempt. And that's what you're called to do here. You're called to reach this community. You're called to build this church. You're called to raise families if God's called you to be married. You're called to take risks, to reach out. Not with the demand that everything you do will bear immediate fruit, but with the sense that it's glorious to even make the attempt. Listen, I wish I could stand here and tell you that the day of risk is over. But you know what? For you, it's probably just beginning. And so constrained by the Spirit, you are going to Jerusalem not knowing what awaits you. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would meet these people, this church, as it goes forward in response to your Spirit and take risks that your name would be magnified. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.